Dr. Marianne Egermont, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you're a very interesting guest. You have a, a spe- specialty, essentially, that I really took interest in. Uh, you're specialized, essentially, in biomimicry, biodesign. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I tend to use bio-inspired design as my sort of catch-all term, but biomimicry is part of that. Uh, biodesign would be more designing with organisms and creatures, and I do not do that. But I am very much inspired by nature and what we can learn from uh, how nature achieves functions, how it, how it deals with challenges and how it solves it. Fascinating. And you're also a professor at the University of Calgary in the School of Engineering, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. I'm okay. a, a teaching professor, so I mainly do lots of teaching, not so much research. Oh, okay. I did not know that. What actually I want to touch on really briefly be, before we start talking about bio-inspired design and all that is that you also have a BA in military history. Uh, yes, that sort of happened. Um not by accident, but because I had some good professors and I started taking every course that they were teaching. And so that's how I ended up with that. So That's uh, the main question I had was how does somebody end up in military history unless they have a real, you know, passion for that? But sometimes it is the professors. Yeah. So I had well, if you know, I'll I'll back up a little bit. I had just moved from the Netherlands to Canada and started doing general studies, which was still kind of a track at that point. And my original intent was to do biology and then go to med school. Um, That didn't really pan out. So during my biology sort of start, I started taking, you know, option courses and, and I've always been interested in history. And I was really taking history courses that kind of put me back into Europe and into Holland uh, because I was missing it lots. And um, then I kind of met some professors who were teaching really interesting topics like interwar diplomacy and espionage in the state and all sorts of funky titles like that. And um, I thought, well, this is interesting. It allows me to learn a lot about where I'm from and and I ended up doing World War One, World War Two, military history. So fascinating. I've actually got a guest that I'm recording right after you who specialized in victory gardens uh, during right. World War One. Yeah. So it's very much related to this. And then after you did the BA in military history, you completed a BFA and an MFA. Yeah, and that's also the fault of the military history. So my final year, I had to do a, a thesis project or, or sort of independent study project on uh, something that was related to the 1930s and um, some of the activities that Hitler was pursuing. And one of those was um, mounting an exhibition that was called Degenerate Art. And that was, I think, in around 1937 or so. Um, And he pulled together all the art that he thought was degenerate and that he had banned throughout Germany, pulled it together in an exhibition, and I think in Munich. Um, And I was studying that exhibition and, and what had happened to the work of these artists. And I became really interested in... Uh, a lot of the sort of very abstract German woodcuts that were on display. And I literally went to the art department and asked, how do you make woodcuts? And that 
yeah, led to six years <laughs> or seven years in the art department. That's amazing. So you're the type of person that genuinely is interested in a lot of things and just kind of follows your curiosity. I do, yeah. And and in a way, I was kind of fortunate to be able to do that. Um, I mean, I do have parents who are very encouraging in terms of academics. Um, but yeah, I just, I get kind of wrapped up in things and then really want to explore them as much as I can and see where it takes me. And then, yeah, as, as you know, with, with the stuff now with bio-inspired design, it's another one of those things that I'm doing a sort of deep dive into. Yeah, I want to I want to stay in your BFA MA, MFA years just for a moment here because I'm curious to know once you finished your MFA at that point did you did you think that maybe you would become an artist? Yeah, and I I still am. Um but yeah, you know, in in any of the spare time that I can find. Um yeah, I did I wanted to teach in an art department and and make art. That was the plan, right? Um but yeah, it went a little different. <laughs> yeah, because then next on your, your list of accomplishments <laughs> is your PhD in computational media design, which I have no idea what that is. Can you explain that for me? Uh, sure. So I had a, I had a long break. So I finished my master's oh, in 98 and then I started this in 2009 or something. Um, so by the time I started the PhD, I'd been teaching in the engineering uh, faculty for quite a long time. And I, I mainly am teaching in areas of design and, um, you know, some technology and society uh, material. Um, and, yeah, I wanted to, to add an angle to my art degree. Uh, and this program kind of reared its head and it was a combination between design art and computer science and i thought okay that allows me another sort of entry into the world of engineering and um yeah it was also allowed me to combine you know some past work that i'd done in the art department so so it, it seemed like a good idea <laughs> okay and what was your um uh what, i guess it's called a thesis when you're doing your phd right or a dissertation mm -hmm. what yeah. was yours on um, I ended up doing something called uh, information visualization and bio-inspired design. Uh, so I was looking at um, maybe patterns or systems or processes in nature that could perhaps inspire data visualization. Okay, so when you're doing that, so you're, you're doing your dissertation, is that also inspiring your art or is your art taking a bit of a break during that time? Yeah, my arts, initially I thought that maybe it could be uh, embedded. That didn't end up happening, although anything that you're doing in an, in an art career bleeds into everything else. So, um, But I wouldn't say that I ended up making a, a series of artwork based on that degree. Um, so it did, yeah, it's a little bit on hold. You're right. Okay. And it's just interesting to me because I was I was speaking with a, a, a former Cirque Soleil musician slash singer, and we were talking about how, because she's doing visual arts now, and mm -hmm. I find that once you're born an artist, you remain an artist no matter what, like you said, no matter what it is that you're doing, it just bleeds into your other work. Yeah. 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 It's just, um, yeah, I think in art, you, you learn to see lots of connections and 
and you sometimes see them where maybe they're not, but you explore them and, and something ends up coming out of it anyways. So yeah, you sort of look at things sideways maybe. <laughs> yeah, I guess, or, or underneath or yeah. from the top. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I find it's a, it's a really uh, curiosity-led experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, why is bio-inspired design, why is that part of the engineering or the school of engineering? Why isn't that part of science or part of art? Or is that just something that is applicable to all those fields, but happens to be taught in engineering? Well, it's taught at our school because I decided to teach it and I'm just stubborn. So I've, <laughs> I've been talking to students about this since 2004 is when I first started to introduce them to it and they responded really well and and sort of their enthusiasm led me to just keep introducing that and it, it was a little bit hit and miss right I sometimes would teach in very large design courses with 800 first years and if I had colleagues that were amenable to doing a project on bioinspired design I would I would create that and the students would um, submit all these amazing drawings and projects and um so it's it's kind of at uc i've i've now managed to get a whole course uh, on the books so it's now a technical elective in third and third or fourth years when they can take it um so that's also recent development since about three years i've been teaching that course uh, but before that it was just a, a subcomponent of design courses um, but it it is applicable to many, many disciplines, right? There's people in business that are looking at this field, um, obviously in science and in biology, which is where all the material really comes from, um, but also in architecture, industrial design, lots of places. Okay. Is biomimicry the same thing as bio-inspired design or is it related? Um, it depends on who you talk to. So uh, as with all fields, there's sometimes... Uh, I don't know what you would call it, schisms perhaps, <laughs> where um, it depends on how people are, are using definitions. Um, so uh, biomimicry, and, and I do agree with that, biomimicry largely looks at bioinspiration that also keeps in mind um, sustainability, right? And and uh, trying not to design things that are just as bad as, as designs that have been designed without biomimicry, right? That, for instance, pollute or, or whatever. So, um, so in biomimicry, they kind of make a distinction that, okay, what we do uh, is an attempt to be sustainable and possibly regenerative. And in engineering, uh, sometimes people prefer to use the term biomimetics, where sometimes where something is inspired um, from biology, but the outcome is not necessarily sustainable, right? It might be more efficient, but not necessarily sustainable. So there's a bit of, yeah, sometimes argument about what is what. That's interesting. I didn't know about the sustainability angle. Uh, mm -hmm. Do you have a, a preference? Like, Do you, do you find um, that you're teaching, you're leaning one way or the other, or do you find that you're really focused on one? Well, I my attempt is that students come up with designs that are more sustainable um, because I think that's where obviously the world needs to go. I mean, <laughs> that's why we're all at home. 
uh, is because we haven't been doing that. So I think it's a it's a huge push that needs to come. Um, that we look at how nature uh, recycles, upcycles, um, creates materials that are benign in terms of chemistry and all that stuff. So I think there's a lot to learn. Have there been any, I mean, plastics is one of the hot topics. Uh, have there been any improvements in maybe making plastics more biodegradable thanks to uh, bioinspired design? Yeah, yeah, that is uh, a big area of research. Um, there is, and, and this, I wouldn't call this strictly biomimicry, but there is a group that's uh, taking discarded um shrimp shells and making up a, a bioplastic out of the, the sort of uh, discarded kind of outer shells of shrimp. Um, so it's sort of a chitin type material and they're able to mold it and and it's it degrades over time. So it's, it's a short use kind of plastic. Um, yeah, and there's lots of other companies that are doing things now with, with uh, milk protein and things like that and turning them into plastic. So so that's, that's definitely happening. Yeah. Amazing. And so one of the questions that came out of uh, Flesh Love, who's the singer I was telling you about earlier, um, she appeared on the podcast uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she is particularly interested in biomimicry and animals. So are animals studied in uh, biomimicry? Uh, yeah, everything <laughs> is, uh, is, is studied. So it's, it's, a, it's a field that is has space for a huge amount of research and um you know as long as we're able to keep the world as biodiverse as possible there's tons and tons to learn um so yeah there's i mean there's people that are studying ant colonies right and how do ants find their way to food sources and how do they convey that information and people are designing algorithms based on that right so uh, um and colony optimization algorithms, right? There's algorithms com coming out of honeybee societies. Um, there's, um, you know, sunscreen that's being kind of researched in terms of hippo sweat that is antibacterial and has a sunscreen type component in it. So there's all sorts of kind of interesting and, and sometimes funny things that animals are able to do that we have no idea about so yeah uh you provided me when i asked you for a photograph of yourself you provided me a photograph of you holding a snake a, a rather large snake yes. uh, <laughs> why were you holding a snake um so one of the things when we were still able to meet uh in person in the classroom um you know we're, we are so kind of isolated from the natural world and Calgary in the wintertime can be especially barren and very cold. So um, I had asked a local uh, group called Reptile Parties, and they usually do just that. They go to kids' birthday parties and they talk about reptiles and show reptiles to the kids. And I thought, well, we're still big kids, so let's invite them to the classroom. And um, so they, they came with a whole bunch of snakes and geckos and uh, I think they even had a chameleon and other things like that and they were fairly large so that was exciting um, classrooms are not that big and some of my students had never seen uh, had never touched an animal in their life which was a bit of a shocker to me not even a pet 
And uh, so they luckily had brought a, a giant uh, tortoise uh, and, and the animal didn't move very fast. So I convinced the student that they could touch that without too many repercussions. <laughs> That's amazing. There's a similar group here in Ottawa called, um, I think it's uh, Raise, Raise Little Reptiles or Raise, man, I can't believe I'm forgetting the name, but I'll put a link later. Uh, but yeah, so they, they also do the same thing. They go around and they, they educate kids and, and grownups, you know, uh, about yeah. reptiles. What is there something in particular that snakes can teach us in terms of design? Yeah, they have all sorts of uh, sensory organs, right, where they can sense, uh, you know, different temperatures. Um, they have incredible jaws that can unhinge, right, and, and we've all seen snakes swallow huge things. Um, there's, you know, the way they move through an environment, right, there's all sorts of different ways that they're moving through and that is huge inspiration for robots and for uh planetary rovers right so the rovers that are being sent to mars for instance right there's some ideas out there of you know instead of having them on wheels maybe they should you know move in that sort of zigzag fashion that a snake will do uh so that you know so that they don't get stuck or they can get out of you know sand dunes or things like that so snakes are hugely inspirational, yeah. Yeah, yeah I would imagine also the molting. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, and, and just, uh, you know, how, how they sort of regenerate that skin and the scaling of the skin, and, and it has, you know, self-cleaning properties, and there's all sorts of interesting applications there. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Uh, you said that some of your students had never even touched an animal before mm -hmm. it, it kind of makes me sad that's a big problem especially in ur um, urban areas rural areas not so much I think kids get the chance to go play outside you know dig holes in the ground and climb trees but in in more urban centers it's a it's a massive problem isn't it I think so yeah and uh yeah, our school, for instance, and, you know, this is just related to, to pets, but I think other schools have been doing this as well uh, during exam time, right? They now are starting to bring, you know, all sorts of animals onto the campus and uh, students can come by and spend time with an animal just to get their, get their stress under control during exam time. So uh, even even things like that, right, are hugely important. And I think, you know, I think dogs in Calgary are sold out at the moment because so many people uh, invested in a pet um, while they were at home, right? Just to be able to go for walks and have that company. So, Right. I never even thought about that. Mm -hmm. um, are there, when you're teaching in, in your classes, when you were in person, would you take the students out on a little field trip, maybe go for a hike? Uh, yeah, we did that as well. Um, We've been on walks with, you know, I would invite fellow biologists from uh, the school um, because I'm very much a generalist, right? So my, I, I sort of have this big picture idea of bio-inspired design, but um, it's, yeah, it creates for me good conditions to invite other people who have their speciality. And so they would uh, provide the sort of biological information and I would try to talk about functionality and design ideas. Uh, we've also done tours at our local zoo. Um, so, you know, go and see the penguins and all sorts of other animals, right? Uh, hippopotamus and, uh, 
yeah, whatever they had at the time, right? Uh, and spend some time just just looking and seeing how they're behaving and how they're interacting, and uh, just really spend time observing. And that's that can be very um, well give this sort of real angle to the field that they're studying. Right. I think it gives them a huge advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you expressed recently that you've had an interest in microorganisms. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, of course, everybody loves the tardigrade. I know you do. <laughs> I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm slightly obsessed myself. Um, yeah. And, and I was, I was interviewed by the local news station when, um, when that spacecraft crashed on the moon and, and there was this news that there was tardigrades on board and, um, you know, I was asked, would they survive, you know, the crash? And anyways, I had this sort of vision of a small, a small society of tardigrades inhabiting the moon (laughs) with tiny little flag. Um, but that's, yeah, anyways, but yeah, no, I'm super interested, right. I'm, um, there's a whole group of organisms that are called extremophiles that that are uh, living in very extreme environments uh, all around the planet. Um, you know, fish that that live in in very very cold waters that have an antifreeze protein in their blood, and um, you know, bacteria that are able to withstand super high temperatures or very toxic environments for us and things like that. So. Again, lots to learn from all those organisms. Yeah, it's been a mind-blowing experience for me because I got my first microscope, my first grown-up microscope, uh, just last year. Mm -hmm. And it was from reading a book by Rob Dunn, who's a scientist in the United States. uh, And the book is called Never Home Alone. And I was reading it. And just in the first chapter, um, I bought a microscope on Amazon. It, It was, and the first time I saw a drop of pond water, Marianne, I was blown away. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. No, it's incredible. Well, yeah. And I, he also has a really good site called CreatureCast, which has these great little videos. I don't know if you've seen them. He asks his students to make these creature videos that are really, um, yeah, they're really great. Sometimes they're just sort of paper puppets. And um, so if you have a chance, have a look at that. But yeah, his stuff is really good. Yeah, he's really good. And so did you end up buying yourself a microscope? I haven't done that yet, but now that I've shown your stuff in Zygote, I I am definitely on my way because I want to find my own tardigrade. <laughs> my <laughs> life will be complete. <laughs> Maybe I can send you some from Ottawa. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, um, I went to the, the zoo in Amsterdam has a new, uh, a new extension called, I think it's called My, Micropia. Um, anyways, they have, they have, uh, a 300 pound enormous tardigrade in their entryway. So I was just sold to that place right away. And yeah. Yeah. Just wait until you get your own microscope. And I, you know, I want to tell everybody listening at home, microscopes are, are much, much cheaper these days. You can get a decent OMAX or AM scope microscope on Amazon, uh, or get a used one, uh, locally, yeah. but essentially the, you, you know, you mentioned extremophiles. That is actually what blows me away is, is, um, and it's not just tardigrades. Like you said, it's like little other little creatures like rotifers. Mm-hmm. Rotifers can survive like a really long time and be brought back to life with just a little bit of water. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, the same with with tardigrades, right? They've been yeah. They found some that that were dormant for thirty years, right? And add water, and they they get back up and walk away. It's unbelievable. Do you know of any uh, bio-inspired design that has come from uh, microorganisms? Well, that that particular uh, ability, so uh, right to go into that dormant state. Um, as far as I understand, what happens is is the organs of that uh, of say the tardigrade um, becomes almost kind of suspended in a sugar coating, right? I think it's called trehalose, and and I sort of imagine it as if you were, you know, if you're printing something with a 3D printer, you know, when you sometimes have those additional little spikes to hold up the objects you're printing. That's how I kind of imagine all these little tardigrade organs being held up by these sugars. And so there is a company, um, I think they're called Biometrica, and and they are doing that with vaccines um, and with, you know, DNA, RNA samples for research. And so normally those would be um, kind of kept in deep, in freezers, right, to, to kind of keep them fresh. Um, but you can have damage, of course, from ice forming on these samples. And so what they're doing is they're, if you take, for instance, a vaccine that's in a liquid, they, they put it into that sort of dried state using a similar process. Um, so that you can transport that material uh, at room temperature and then add water the way we do with the tardigrade um, and make that sample viable again. So that's really interesting because then you don't need refrigeration or freezing capacity, um, especially, say, in areas where there's a hard time getting electricity, right? So so that's super wow. cool. Yeah, That is really, really cool. I did not know that. And I wonder, too, like, for you know ciliates for example mm -hmm. uh you know the the little creatures that have little hair-like um structures called cilia all around them and that's how they swim i wonder if there's a way to like improve i don't know underwater crafts or something yeah yeah that that would definitely be an option i mean there's um yeah i'm not completely sure if that's the being looked at, I'm sure it is, you know, I mean, if, if we're thinking about it, others are, of course, too. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there's a couple of robots for underwater surveying that are being designed based on on marine life movement so that they don't uh, disturb, right, say a coral reef too much so that the movement is gentle, right, and it's not a giant motor kind of coming through. Um, so it's definitely advantageous for either moving quietly or slowly or, you know, without much turbulence or, right, things like that. So right. all sorts of possibilities, yeah. Uh, so do you have to reverse engineer? So, for example, um, I don't know, snake skin or something. We want to learn how snakes, snakes uh, molt and stuff like that. Do you have to know exactly how it's done in order to uh, create a design based on that? Well, for something like that... Yeah, I would try and know as much as possible, but um, in other cases, and this is where I sometimes butt heads with biologists. So biologists obviously are trying to know everything uh, there is to know about, say, a specific organism. That's their speciality. And then I show up and say, oh, well, you know, there's this, uh, we just looked at... Uh, um, you know, this particular shape and it looks like a good, um, a good shape for uh, 
being turbulent free or something like that, or right. Having very, um, you know, and they say, oh, but you don't know everything there is to know about the animals. So that's not always necessary in terms of coming up with better design. Um, but, you know, the more knowledge, the better, obviously. But I I would say, you know, if people are interested in, in, in this stuff, right, try and put together a very interdisciplinary group, right, so that you tap people that have the expertise and collaborate, right? So it's a, a big... company could form a department. They could, like a company that's building, um, I don't know, medical supplies or new food products or whatever, they could potentially create a whole new department within their company uh, based on bio-inspired design. I think so, yeah. I think they need to start hiring biologists. <laughs> so, sure. um, you know, and have, and have you know, in-house biologists work with their designers and, um, you know, maybe start with a sort of, biologist who's a bit more of a generalist but who can kind of you know think laterally and say yeah that reminds me of and then you know see where the conversation goes i think i think that definitely has possibilities and there are companies that are doing that so um, oh there are i didn't know yeah, yeah so that's that's happening slowly um i'm at a conference uh, next week where we have a a senior designer who's uh, part of OXO, right? The company that makes uh, these kitchen products that are super easy to use and kind of, I don't know if you've seen them, but yeah. anyways, they they have uh, their senior designer who's super interested in bio-inspired design and, and is looking at all sorts of things, you know, to mimic bio or compliant joints and all sorts of interesting hinges. And so he's looking at biology. That is so cool because there's a lot of biologists. I mean, there's not enough teaching jobs, first of all, for all the biologists in the world. And there's not a lot, a lot of um, research positions either. So yeah. I think this is a field that they could potentially specialize in, in, especially in private industry. Absolutely. Yeah. I think, well, I think and I hope that that's going to become, uh, right, a huge kind of, yeah, job opportunity for biologists, right? Uh, they And they, yeah, we have to work towards a more sustainable future, much more sustainable. And uh, I think the way to do is is to see, you know, how do organisms adapt and survive and and flourish and thrive? And how do we start to act more in sync with uh, the world around us, right? Is there, um because I know a lot of biologists, especially on Twitter, I know a lot of them who are spe specialized in everything from birds to diatoms. Yeah. Uh, is there an additional course or is there a way that they could present themselves to private industry in a better position to apply or create these jobs? Yeah, so, I mean, they could, um, you know, there's a bunch of uh, groups out there um, that are, that do training, right? So there's uh, the Biomimicry Institute uh, in the States that runs yearly design challenges um, for high school kids and for university students. And I have my students participate in that. Um, but there's a program at ASU uh, in Arizona that will give you a master's in bio-inspired design or biomimicry. Um, there's a couple programs in Germany. Um, so there's and there's a a group out of uh, I think it's Guelph uh, Biomimicry Frontiers. So that's uh, out east in Canada. 
they're starting up with um, an online course really soon. Uh, so I'd keep an eye out for that. Uh, Jamie Miller is the guy who's running that. He's an engineer and really well versed in this area. So there's there's opportunities in Canada, also in the States, uh, Germany. Those are kind of three big places where this is going on. Okay, that's good to know. I have one last question in regards to bioinspired design, and then we're going to move on. Um, I was curious to know if there's been a reversal sometimes where animals have mimicked what you, humans do. <laughs> I had to well, I saw <laughs> I saw a parrot singing Beyonce yesterday, and it was really good. <laughs> and there was a. And this was in the same place somewhere in the UK. There's a, a sanctuary for uh, parrots that have been, quote unquote, let go by their owners. Anyways, they had to separate uh, five gray parrots because they were teaching each other to swear at the visitors. Anyways, I love that stuff. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, I guess we're the most intelligent in terms of being able to mimic other creatures. But I would think that maybe with, for example, apes, that, that could mimic things like tools like I, I think there was an orangutan that was spearfishing one time yeah and i don't know yeah. if it's because it saw a human do it that i think it's possible right um there's yeah i mean there's all sorts of research coming out right now about crows and and that they have an actual sense of self and they're able to think about uh, themselves and what they know which i find just fascinating um and and they have been shown to do all sorts of kind of tool manipulation and uh, whether they whether they observe us I think sometimes probably in sort of research settings where they're trying to have crows right solve com complex problems right in terms of how do I open this to get this uh, particular treat um, and there's all sorts of of course great videos of crows with with uh, a lid from a yogurt container tobogganing down a roof, right? And I don't know, maybe they've seen us do that. <laughs> so so well, who knows? Very curious, definitely. Yeah. We just, we don't know enough, right? Yeah. We're, fair, we're fairly cocky, but we don't know an awful lot. That's true. That's true. You uh, are part of a group that um, edits and manages uh, a biodesign Bio-inspired design journal, I guess, uh, called. Uh, now I'm going to pronounce it probably more in the French way. In French, we say zygote, uh, yeah. but it is it is zygote quarterly. Is that correct? Yeah, I say zygote quarterly. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, however you want to say it. Uh, ZQ. There you go. ZQ uh, or ZQ if you're American, or I guess. ZQ. Yeah. 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 Uh, what inspired this, and uh, you know, what do you hope to achieve with this uh, quarterly design? Um, so we started in, well, we started talking in 2011 and I'd been teaching, um, the students quite a bit of this material in, in this first year design course. And I was always looking for a resource for them. And, and there, there is a, a sort of scientific journal called Biomimetics and Bioinspiration. And that's of course a good journal, but uh, tends to be a little bit heavy on the math and on the science and not as easily digestible for, say, a first-year student. Um, so that existed and then fairly hyped up sort of new stories about, you know, the latest and greatest in, in biomimicry uh, that were that were good information but not enough information, right? They sort of 
yeah, very short pieces um, that would kind of disappear. So I got together with some colleagues and I said, you know, well, if if it's not, if it doesn't exist, why don't we start something and see where it goes? Um, so yeah, we, we published our first issue in 2012 and yeah, I don't think we thought that we would still be going now, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, as long as it's, as long as we can pull material together, I, I think the three of us are yeah, continuing and uh, we have some very uh, dedicated um, kind of authors that contribute, right? We have somebody from ASU who writes this Science of Seeing column. That's really great. And um, yeah, so so everything is, is on a voluntary basis. And, uh, you know, as long as we have energy to do it, we'll do it. Yeah, it, it's funny because for people who don't know, I I was featured in issue twenty eight of uh, Zygot Quarterly, and I was curious because one thing that I don't recall asking you is how you found me and my work, and how do you find people to feature in this um, in this journal? Uh, I do a lot of surfing um, on the web. <laughs> um, I still hope to do a surfing course one day soon when we're allowed out again, but. Yeah, how did I find you? I've I've looked at, at, I've come across your site multiple times, and I just this time I don't know why. I think because I had tardigrades on my mind so much that I was I was looking for tardigrade material uh, that I came across your site again. And um, I always, you know, I always throw my proposals for portfolios in the group. Right, we try to be a a democratic board, and uh, yeah, they said great example of citizen science and something really accessible and i think i think something a lot of the educators that read the magazine uh, will pick up on so I, I was super excited that you said yes so that's great no but i mean i was i was also super excited to know that there was a a journal that was excited to feature someone who didn't have a un university education you know I, on paper i still only have a high school education yeah, to me that, I mean, I don't know. I don't really care about that at all, actually. <laughs> I, I know that I have, have done a lot of things, but I'm so reactionary that, I, you know, I, I could have easily gone a different route. And, and I just, I'm interested in people that are passionate about something and that doesn't necessarily need a degree, right? Right. Um, I mean, I for this bio-inspired stuff, I'm in a way completely self-taught, right? Um I did it lots of other degrees, but nothing really in this area, right? So, so I I think you know, for most people, right, get excited about something and and just stick with it, right? And you never know where it ends up. Absolutely. And speaking of passion, you uh, you're an artist. I mean, you know all this stuff. You know that you know if you stick to something, it 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 materializes. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about your art. What kind of artwork do you do? Yeah, so the artwork, if I if I think back, I think the reason I started making art and, and really started investigating that whole side of myself had a lot to do with, with being an immigrant and moving from another country and and really trying to sort of investigate, you know, the person, the place, right, the the landscape that was very much related to, you know, where was I from and where was I now and, and how was I feeling about all that? 
So art was pretty much a vessel of expression for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so let, let why don't we tell that story briefly then? You're originally from the Netherlands. You came mm-hmm. to Canada. And then what happened? I started school here right away. Um, yeah, I think in Holland, I probably would have either done Dutch literature or med school. So two very different things. And then when I got here, that kind of all went out the window because you know, you have to get an undergrad here first before you go to med school. And um, yeah, you also kind of have to get used to, right? What is this place, right? And how are people in their day to day? And uh, do I gel with that? Do I not gel with that, right? Uh, making all new friends, um, trying to see where you fit, right? And then uh, maybe there's a lot more reflection that happens as to who you are yourself when you're going through that process. Why did you come to Canada in the first place? Uh, my dad was a is a researcher, he recently retired, but um, yeah, he was offered a, a research position uh, in Calgary. And so we moved, yeah, because I was young enough to be moved with my parents. So. <laughs> <laughs> what did he, uh, what did he research? Uh, he's a biophysicist, so he he's kind of, uh, yeah, I think it gels with him that I'm doing this bio-inspired design in a way, uh, right? He's he's always very much looked at all that material, and I think subconsciously I've always been aware of that stuff in the house, right? I've always seen books in the house that, that deal with uh, evolution and nature, and um, yeah, he's, you know, he's a big supporter of all sorts of wildlife organizations so I think I do come by it naturally in a way but via a very circuitous route. (laughs) Interesting do you find so let's say you were to have an art show in 2022 (laughs) we're not going to say right now because it's just not possible (laughs) Um, if you were to have an art show you go to a new gallery let's say New York City they they, you have a beautiful solar art show do you find that people will take you more seriously as an artist if you tell them that you're also, uh, you know, a, a, an engineering professor? Or do you find it's the opposite? Do you find that, you know, they don't support your artwork because they figure, oh, well, you have a day, a day job? Yeah, a little bit more of the latter. And not so much that I have a day job, but um, that I'm not suffering enough for the art, maybe. Hmm. And maybe that's the same. <laughs> So, you know, that that I've somehow diluted being an artist by doing all these other things. I think people like it when you do one thing, right? And and if you start doing more, then then, yeah, then it it becomes maybe a little bit suspect. Yeah, that's something I I wanted to bring up with you because I was in the same shoes. You know, when I had a day job, um, I think what's interesting is that uh, on social, I never talked about my day job. I always talked about my art. When people learned that I had a day job, they were surprised. They were like, yeah. oh, we didn't know that. And and I found their attitudes very different afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have found the same. So I'm, yeah, I think part of the pause right now is just reassessing. Um, okay, if I am going to be an artist, you know, how am I going to continue? Because um, I've, yeah, I've. So far, I've made work for 20 years that has been all fairly sort of along the same lines. And and I think, yeah, I'm at a, at a stage where I have to think, okay, I, 
I enjoy making art and that's sort of my happiest place. Um, and at the moment, designing Zygote is taking a huge sort of space in that sort of creative, wanting to be creative uh, side. But uh, definitely have to think about, right, how, how am I going to present myself as an artist if I do the next show? So he actually do caught you... me at a, at a sort of big pause. <laughs> oh, that's interesting because I'm yeah. also in a big pause. <laughs> yeah. And I find that in my case, it's because I don't have anything to say artistically, which is why I found it fascinating that you, crea- you really created a lot when you were a new immigrant. Um, because for me, I created a lot during you know a time in my life where I was very transitionary and, and moving and living in Montreal. Uh, so do you still have something to say? Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, I think so. But I, I think another reason for the pause is that I also don't want to continue just doing this rote art making where I just keep doing the same thing because that's been fairly successful and that's what I can sell. Like it has to still be interesting for me as well. Um because that's the thing with art, right? It should actually really come from you and not be driven by by what people want to see. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that's that's another reason for stopping is that I felt that I was doing too much of the same thing for the past 10 years or so. Um, where I thought, okay, now I'm just going into this sort of process of just making stuff that I know how to make and that I've made before, but packaged in a slightly different, you know, series. Right. So I want to make sure I, I still challenge myself with what I'm making. Yeah, that's very interesting too. Hmm. I do wonder sometimes what inspires people to create new work. Uh, and I mean, new, not just a new series, but new, new work. Uh, I wonder if it's, you know, almost needing to experience something new in their life too. It's, yeah, it's possible. And and I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what are the materials that I will be using going forward? And if I'm so uh, invested in this sustainable way of designing, is what I'm making in, in my art career, you know, sustainable, environmentally friendly, uh, biodegradable possibly, right? So do I need it to last forever or do I want it to disintegrate over a five-year span and, and disappear? Interesting. Yeah, because that could be a different new angle for you, a new challenge, so to speak. Do you enjoy yeah. challenges? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be an art person in an engineering faculty. <laughs> right. True, true. Do you, yeah. uh, do you enjoy teaching? I do, yeah. It's, it's a little challenging at the moment because we're online, of course. Um, but, yeah, I really, I really love the students and really enjoy, um, you know, when they're enthusiastic. And, and yeah, they always work super hard so i'm super appreciative of that so how's the online thing going i I spoke with a math professor recently and he told me how he's doing it how are you doing it um i'm mostly what they're calling asynchronous at the moment so i i i'm teaching a a small course so i i'm in a way i'm lucky this semester so i'm doing an art and engineering course and i basically Right, we'll, we'll sort of post the material for the week on a Friday, and then I meet them all on a Thursday for an hour on Zoom. But that hour is spent um, 
looking through the work that they did for me. Um, so everybody gets to see what everybody else did. And then I also am trying to go to museums virtually. So we went to the Rijksmuseum the other day and looked at the Vermeer paintings. So um, that way I can kind of show them, you know, a place and, um, you know, the paintings in the place and we can talk about, right, all the sort of nice art stuff that's happening in the paintings and things. And, and then the material for the week after is usually based on an aspect of that visit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the um, artist Stephen Frew uh, had told me that he, he taught uh, an art class in one of your programs, I guess, a few years back. Uh, mm -hmm. So do you still use art as a, other than visiting um, art galleries, but do you have students do art? Yeah. So um, one of the things uh, in, in order to sort of have them look at works of art is I have them try to recreate that work of art with sort of minimal objects that they can find in their own house or in their, you know, in their dorm room. Um, and those have been really fun. So they can, you know, recreate a Vermeer painting using three objects and they can include themselves as a plus one. And those have been really fun. So. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun, actually. You must be like one of the fun teachers, right? I mean, I'm sure they look forward to your course. Well, I can only say I hope so, but, you know, we'll see. We'll see when evaluation time comes. <laughs> oh, do the students actually evaluate their professors? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, I know nothing, obviously. Yeah, no, we uh, we get feedback, and they don't hold back either, so. Okay. Um, you know, so. <laughs> oh, and this is aside from the whole rate my professors thing online. This is internally. Oh. I can't even go there. Yeah. No. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> we won't. It's, it's too mortifying. But yeah, even getting reviews back. I mean, I, you know, I kind of have a quick peek at the numbers, and then, yeah. I mean, I, I tend to not dive too deeply into, into the comments. It becomes personal pretty quickly, and yeah, we're human too. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. My my skin is only so thick. So. Absolutely. But, how yeah, how no. long have you been doing this? Um, yeah, since probably 20 years or so. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, okay. in general, in general, the students are pretty nice. So I'm, I'm, I'm lucky that way. But uh, yeah, I, huh. I, I try to pay attention and check in and say, okay, you know, Zoom is, is the death of just about anything. But um, so just tell me to back off if I'm going too much. So. So I try to I try to have a dialogue while we're doing all this. And you live in Calgary now. A lot of, of people, including academics, have been essentially leaving the cities. They're just tired of living in the city. Are you feeling that that uh, that pull away from the city? Yeah, a little bit. Although I have to say, even though right, I'm super interested in nature and I love being out in nature. I'm very much a city slicker. I can't help it. Like, hmm. yeah, I'm. I'm addicted to good coffee and good food and all that stuff. So, right. I think I think being out in the boonies would not be good for me. <laughs> so. Well, now now I, I am curious. What uh, what was it about Canadian society that really uh, either impressed you or kind of turned you off when you came to Canada? Oh man, I have to be careful with this one. Um, <laughs> What impresses me and actually really impresses me, especially right now and and since right we all had to stay home since since about march is 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 how well 
Canadians handle this and how friendly they have stayed and how supportive they have stayed. Um, and yeah, in general, how polite and accommodating and careful. Um, that I'm really impressed with and always have been actually in Canada. It's, mm -hmm. it's just this general kind of small town feel in very big cities. And, and Calgary, when I moved here, it was maybe 500,000, 600,000 people. And now we're, I think, 1.2, 1.3 million. And I still find that they've been able to maintain that kind of civility. So I'm super happy that, that's, that this is where I'm living right now. I could tell you that. Yeah, it, especially right now. I mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else. I, you know, I'm born in Canada, born and raised in Northern Ontario. But for me, what's been the hardest uh, being in Canada and having a lot of friends who are European or American is kind of the, the bit of a lack of ambition or a bit of a, um, where I find that uh, it's very easy to kind of denigrate somebody who is going for it, you know, who's really like ambitious and has great ideas and wants to like stand out. And so in Canada, it's very uh, common because of the politeness and to say sorry all the time yeah, <laughs> is that we yeah. don't we don't like to stand out very much as an artist and, you know, somebody who's very well accomplished. Have you have you noticed that a little bit? Not a huge amount. I, I think. I think they're very open to having you do or be whatever in my own experience, right? And maybe that's that's not for that's not the same for everyone. But I I think, you know, I think the yeah, I think in Canada you can still stand out without having to I think countries that have a lot of that sort of uh standing out are also countries where there's a lot of bragging and a lot of grandstanding. Right. And I'm seeing the huge downside of that right now. And so I'm kind of changing my mind about whether that's a good thing or not. So Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I I love I've always admired, you know, New York City, for example. You know, New York City was the place I was gonna go to when I was young. New yeah. York City was the place that had everything. It had in the eighties it had breakdancing, it had, you know, pizza slices it had opportunities you could become an artist you know it had art museums Greenwich Village was still around yeah and and still affordable <laughs> yeah um but I think you're right I think now it's it's a different uh it's a different society for artists especially I think how is how is Calgary for artists is that a pretty welcoming community I think so and I think you know there's quite a bit of places that are being added right so there's a contemporary calgary that opened in the the old science center building which is a, a beautiful brutalist building uh, from the 60s um, that's showing yoko ono right now and omar ba um, so there's some there's some good shows and good the glembo museum i believe is being revamped and and getting a huge upgrade so there is some some momentum here of course that came to a grinding halt in March, but places are trying to start kind of opening uh, kind of sensibly again. But I think, I think art making uh, is going to be very much part of the new future that we have to build, which is more about uh, collaboration and maybe a little bit more humility because we're destroying the place. So <laughs> we yeah. need to do things differently. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. A uh, quick question for you before we end this. What's yeah. the, one of the first things you're going to do in terms of, you know, what what's the, the first maybe restaurant or what kind of food you're going to go out to when this is all done? When this is all done, uh, I would like for us to go to Victoria to see my son and to go for a meal at L'Ecole, which is a great little Flemish slash French restaurant in Chinatown in Victoria. That sounds divine and also weird. That weird place <laughs> for French food. <laughs> it's fabulous. It was in really? an old Chinatown school, which is why it's called L'Ecole. And uh, it's a fabulous little place. And they have fantastic Belgian beer. So. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing all about your foray into Victoria when this is all done. Mm -hmm. uh, Marianne Agramont, it has been an absolute joy. I've learned so much today. I hope that uh, people are going to listen to this and be inspired to uh, to look uh, you know, further into this field. Uh, do you, are there any books that you'd like to recommend to people who are interested in biomimicry and bio-inspired design? Well, not to be too self-serving, but start with Zygote Quarterly, zqjournal.org. Mm -hmm. And we always reference where all our stuff is coming from. So there's lots of books and links inside all the, the journals. Um, so have a look at that. It's all open source and downloadable. So uh, I would start there. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much for the invite. It's my pleasure.